message from the front row here. Hey, do you know what? This, um, this last week, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it now. Some of these guys here, they, we had to buy a new sound desk. The old one died. It came to the end of its life. No more sound. And so they've been in here, some of them till two o'clock. In fact, Rich Harris, who's on the sound today, he was in here till three o'clock, 3 a.m. this morning. Hello? This guy here, James, he, he was, he's doing a PhD here at Cambridge. He's, got, he's very brainy and he's, he plays the guitar beautifully. He just volunteered, came in every day, Thursday, Friday, stayed till 2 a.m. so as that we could be here today doing this. Thank you guys, we, we appreciate it. Without them, we wouldn't have been here. Now, having said that, they've just whispered to me on the front row as I came up, there is a fault on the Wi-Fi. Nothing to do with them, actually. It's just that the Wi-Fi has gone down at the same time, which means we can't have the live link upstairs today. For some reason, I don't quite get that, but uh, they told me we can't, so you can stay down here, stay in here, but obviously for the young... Oh, is it back on? Oh, I've got another sign at the back of the room. It's on! Wow. The live link is on, guys. You can go into the lounge with your young children and do that. Hey, last Sunday we mentioned our compassion trip to Kenya. And we had 21 children that we wanted to sponsor last weekend. We already sponsor as a church nearly 200, but there was another 21 in the very projects that we were involved in, in Kabir and such like. Well, the good news is, unless it's gone up since I last heard, 14 of you took a sponsor child. 14 last Sunday, across the day. If you're interested, there's still opportunity to do that. So as that we're in the same area together, you can go to reception, pick up one of the forms there and sponsor a child. Do you know what we also did when we were in Kenya? Because of some of the guys in the church here who did this 100 kilometer crazy challenge, uh, some of them at blisters for weeks afterwards. They raised £3,000. And because of that, we were able to do a party for all the sponsored children in a walking safari there in Kenya. So I just wanted to say to you guys that went more than the second mile, you went 100 kilometers. Thank you for doing that. We appreciate it. We're going to take up our offering now. And it goes to those things that I've just mentioned. But let me read this as well, because tomorrow we have our holiday club for the kids. We've already had one week. This is our second week. And one dad, this was from the community, doesn't come to the church here. He wrote this email in to Becky this week. He said, just to let you know that both of my children will be there on Monday. They miss you guys so much. Thank you for this kind of project. Kids really enjoyed it. Hopefully every school break will have this sort of activity for all the kids. I salute and appreciate everything you've done not only to my kids, for all the kids who've been with you. See you on Monday. God bless you always. So thank you to those that have been volunteering and involved in that. Your giving goes towards that. Hey, I had an email last night come in from Mark Ritchie. Any of you remember Mark Ritchie, evangelist? He just wrote to say thank you to C3 because we support him, uh, partly financially with other churches. And he's been at the Edinburgh Fringe with his show, 
He'll be here with us at the end of October. But he had absolute full house every single night. That means you and me have been part of that with our support for Mark. And he asked me to say to you, thank you for your generosity. So please, guys, connect team. We'll take up the offering. If you want to give via online or with the envelope or my church suites or standing order, thank you to those that give regularly on standing order. It makes a difference. We really appreciate it if you do it in that way. Thank you. Let's take up our offering. As I mentioned, some of us will be away at one event. Some of the guys in the band are going to be involved in some of the worship and such like across the site. People are serving, setting up. If you want to come on the bank holiday Monday, come along, pay for the day. You'll enjoy it. I don't know what the weather's going to be like. Pray for the weather because it's really not nice walking from our hotel to the car in the mornings. I get my hair wet. Just don't like it. Okay, take a look at the C3 News behind me. Here's this week's news. Hello, and welcome to this week's C3 News. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tom. Oh, apparently news just in. Oh, because we've been away from the C3 church for so long and people don't recognise us, they might think we're actually married. Oh, I mean, we do share the same surname, so it's logical, but in fact, we're siblings. As you can tell by our very similar features. Enjoy the news. On the 8th of September, we have our C3 Groups Fair. So if you don't know, C3 Groups are a way for you to get more involved in church family life. They're communities to get you plugged in and really involved in our community here. The fair is on at all three services and you can wander around and see which groups you want to sign up for. Be it Zorg football or finger painting. Yeah, Zumba, Jiu Jitsu. Toilet cleaning, watching paint dry or even a Steve Campbell lookalike competition. Ah, oh, news just in. Ah, oh, apparently not all of the groups we mentioned are currently available to sign up for. But you could become a group leader, make the group of your dreams. Getting connected into the life of the C3 Church is all about deepening our relationship with God and with each other. Whether you have been a part of C3 for five minutes, five months, or five years, there is always something new for you to discover. There's room to grow for everyone in every stage of life. So, 
What's your next step? Have you taken part in our growth path? Or perhaps it's time for you to join a team or a C3 group. Maybe you are ready to step up into a position of leadership you never thought you could. Whatever the next step looks like, you can find it here at C3. This Wednesday, we have the continuation of Summer Nights. Summer Nights is a great event hosted by Coldham's Coffee, where you can have coffee, play games, be part of the community, and maybe even watch a film. Sounds great. So it's happening this Wednesday, 7.30. Oh, um, news just in. Apparently it's great fun. So C3, this is all the time that we have left this week. If you are new or haven't connected with us before, head to the Connect Lounge and talk to somebody in a red t-shirt. Or if you are part of the family and want to get more involved, then head to our Team C3 stand in Coldham's Coffee to find out which team you could join. Oh, news just in. Ah, the Steve Campbell Lookalike Group is going ahead and has actually expanded to include both of our senior pastors. So, Send in the pictures of you looking like Steve or Angie to our Instagram page. Good luck. Sounds great. See you next week, C3. Bye. Feel free not to get involved in that last thing. Okay, now it's time for any kids that are left in the room that's walking to preschool. There is a live lounge, so you can go up there and watch that because the Wi-Fi is fixed. But we're going to stand together and worship. Hey, the series we've started has been great, hasn't it, already? And we've got Elspeth Darley again today. We're going to look at, we're doing an overview of the Bible, and we're going to look at the history books today. You're going to love it. But let's worship our God. Let's stand together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever bring We live for you We live for you Jesus, the name above Jesus, the only one you could ever see. Worthy of every breath you could ever breathe. We live for you.
love your presence. I thank you that your love is a firm foundation. Father, I thank you for your word, the Bible. I thank you that that is a firm foundation. In a world that is shakable, you remain unshakable. So Lord, we just position ourselves with our hearts open to you today, Lord. Do what only you can do. Jesus, we want to encounter you. And all God's people said, Amen. So as you're taking your seats, I'd love it if you gave the person next to you a high five and told them your rapper name. Now, if you, if you want to know what your rapper name is, it's the last thing that you ate plus the color of your top. So I would be Banana Blue. That's my rapper name. Uh, so if you feel comfortable doing that, there we go. <laughs> I'm very curious now what a lot of your rapper names are. And if you're joining us on Church Online, you're so welcome here. If you're watching from other campuses, great to have you with us. We'd love to connect with you. And it's so good to be back here with friends again and to carry on the series, The Book That Changed the World. Now, this series is influenced by a guy called James Emery White. So if you're interested in this series or you want more resources, I'd point you in his direction. He's got a lot of really, really good stuff on this topic. So recently, I've actually been getting back into a new BBC TV show, and it's called Who Do You Think You Are? Some of you have seen it, yes? And recently, they've got a new series out. And the premise of this TV show is that they have a celebrity, and they trace back through their family history to find out what their family history looked like, and what they did, where they went. A recent one, there was a guy called Danny Dyer, and he's a right kind of East Ender kind of guy, like talks like that. That's my impression, anyway. And uh, it was brilliant. So on this show, Who Do You Think You Are? They traced his family history, and they linked him back to one of the kings of England. Ooh. So the very end scene, he runs back to the house going, I'm royalty, I'm royalty. And the whole thing is fantastic. It makes you laugh, makes you cry. But the point of the show, Who Do You Think You Are, is this that by understanding where you've come from, who you've come from, where, you know, the family that you're part of, by understanding all of that history, you can better understand who you are. And so today we're going to be looking at the 12 history books of the Bible. So who's excited? Now these history books were written at a time of huge national identity crisis. See, identity is kind of the buzzword of this generation at the moment, and that's why TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are are quite popular, because they say, actually, oh, who am I? How do I define myself? Now, when we're younger, quite often we identify ourselves with our family. So when I was a lot younger, I remember um, sitting at my mum's feet, um, just in this memory, and I remember saying to her, Mum, what's my real voice? What's my true voice? Because I used to put on all these silly accents, like the Cockney one I just did, and I remember thinking, I don't know who, uh, you know, or what my real voice is. And sometimes children will say, you know, Mum, Dad, what's my nationality? Or, you know, what political party do we support? And quite often the parents answer will satisfy the child, and therefore the child's identity will be identified or defined by that of the family. Now, when that child grows up then, quite often they might become a teenager, go off to university, or maybe there's a separation in the family or a death, or sometimes you uproot from your, the place of your birth and you move somewhere else. 
and questions about, well, what's my nationality now? What does citizenship really mean? Who am I? How do I define myself now in this world? Come back to the fore. And quite often, then, people construct their identities by participating and internalizing culture. So culture might say, oh, well, you can be defined by the food that you eat. You know, go veganism. Um, or maybe it's all, you know, the hobbies that you like. Well, I'm a runner. So, you know, I, I love running. That's my identity. Sometimes it's your sexuality or your gender or the people that you hang out with. And this is how people construct their identities. So the history books then, these 12 books that we're looking at, as I say, they were written at a time of huge identity crisis. Why? Because when they were written, they start off following the formation of the people of God. It, it follows their rise in prominence, and then it follows their moral and physical decline. And what we'll see a little bit in the history of this people is that they're uprooted from their nation, from their land. They're no longer under God's kind of um, authority or kingship. They now have other rulers dominating them. And so questions about identity, who am I, whose am I, how am I defined, really come out here. Now, the second thing then about these history books is that they're written to teach the reader something. They're written looking back saying, hey, look at all these amazing Bible stories. But they teach you about what not to do and what to do so that you learn from the people in your family tree. You learn from their history. So... I think what would be really good then is if we were to imagine a TV series, we've got the end of season one, and John Wilson spoke about the Pentateuch. This is the first five books of the Bible, and we're going to be looking at the history books, season two. So at the end of season one, what happens is this. First of all, you have Genesis, and in Genesis, God says, I'm going to make humanity in my image. The people are going to be my image bearers. And then in Exodus, you've got 40 years of identity formation. See, the people of God have been kicked out of Egypt who used to say, well, you're a slave, this is how you act, this is your identity. That's been stripped away. And for 40 years, the people of God are wandering through a desert, and God is the one saying, this is your morality, this is your ethical code, this is the food that you eat and the clothes that you wear. And then you come to Leviticus, and in Leviticus, God says, hey, it's not just about being made in the image of God, but it's about living that out. Be holy and set apart, because God is holy and set apart. And then the final book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, it ends from chapter 28 onwards by saying, okay, if you live out your true identity as an image bearer of God, and if you obey him, then you'll be set high above the nations, but, and there's a flip side of this, if you forget your true identity and you're not set apart, you're not holy, you forget whose you are, then the other nations will come and overtake you. And the credits kind of roll and the lights come up on season two and it begins with a book called Joshua. Now, Joshua, the book, begins with the death of Moses. Moses was the man who'd led the people of God for 40 years in their identity formation. And Joshua has the responsibility now to take the people of God into a land promised to them. Now, bear in mind, this generation of the people of God have never encountered other cultures. See, it was their parents and their ancestors were the ones in Egypt, and they'd all died out. And so this is the first time then that these people are really approaching a land and immersing themselves in this culture. And God says to Joshua and the people, I need you to clear the land. I need you to uproot some of the people that are there, and so you can move in. Now, I'm not talking about tolerance or cultural diversity here. 
actually for the past 400 years, the people in the land had been doing some really kind of detestable stuff, things like child sacrifice, and then they would do weird things with the blood of it. And finally, God said, look, you've had 400 years to repent, to turn this around. And so Joshua and the people of God are told, look, go and clear them out of the land. This is just too much. This is too painful. But what does Joshua and the people do? They start out so well. But slowly, compromise comes in. And again, it's not about tolerance, it's about a spiritual compromise that sets them up for the next thousand years like a thorn in the side of the flesh of the people of God that slowly erodes their true identity. See, the point that comes from the book of Joshua is this. Joshua was called to possess the land, but through spiritual compromise, the land and its culture eventually possessed the people of God. In the same way, if you are a follower of Jesus here, you are called to influence, to shape the culture around you. But so often, spiritual compromise can creep in and the culture around us overtakes us and we are indistinguishable from the people around us. We're no longer holy and set apart. And this can often be quite subtle. As I say, the people of God had never encountered a culture before, and maybe you've come home from school holidays um, or at university, and you've spent really good time back in your home church, or maybe you've you know, gone away to a Christian camp and you're on fire, and suddenly maybe Monday comes, or you go back to university, and there's a cultural clash, and they ask questions, well, why would you tithe? Or why wouldn't you take revenge? And bit by bit, bit by bit, sometimes, if we're not careful, we can be compromised. Now... That's the end, really, of the book of Joshua, and it moves on then to the book of Judges. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua. Now, what happens is God speaks very, very clearly to the people of God, saying this in chapter 2. People of God, make no covenant or promises with the inhabitants of the land. Instead, break down their altars. But what do the people of God do? They hoard after other gods and bow down to them. Now that term hoard is really unpalatable to our kind of modern ears. It's derogatory, it's not very nice, and there's something that you know, is very uncomfortable in saying. And the reason that this word is used again and again and again in the Old Testament is that it communicates the unfaithfulness of God's people. See, God has always been after your heart, always after a relationship with you. But so often, like the people of God, we abandon that love and we cheat on him. We cheat on God. We go after other things. In fact, in the book of Judges, these people go after fertility gods. They cheat on God for these other gods that give them promises of life. They cheat on him. It's unfaithful. In fact, the whole book of Judges can be summarized in chapter 17, verse 6, that says, everyone did as he saw fit. See, it was no longer about being an image bearer of God and being holy like he is holy. Instead, it was about building up your own identity, constructing your own self, however you wanted to be. Maybe a bit of this fertility God, maybe a little bit of you know, Yahweh, the God there. But really, it was about building up your own identity and cheating and being unfaithful on God. So what is God's reaction as a cheated or jilted lover? What, what would his reaction be? Should he wash his hands of these people? No, instead... What it, the Bible says is that God looks on the people and he sees not only them copying the culture, but that culture actually coming and attacking them. And the people of God get distressed and it says 
that God was moved to pity by their groaning. God is always moved by distress. No matter how self-inflicted it is, God is always so moved by your distress and he is always so merciful. So God looks at this situation. He says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up some leaders, 14 in total. They're going to be judges. And they are going to point the people back to myself. We've got warrior judges. We've got priestly judges. And we've got prophetic judges. And every time, you know, the people go out of line, they will bring them back in. Seven times then the people of God cheat on him. Seven times they end up in distress because of that abandonment. And seven times they're pulled back and rescued Now, it's against this backdrop of kind of compromise, spiritual compromise, that the book of Ruth is written. Now, Ruth is a really beautiful but ironic story because it's about a lady called Naomi who's got a husband and two sons, and they move out of their land and go over to Moab. Now, when they're there, her two sons marry some Moabite ladies. Now, this is a bit of a no-no. God's already said, you know, you must not intermarry with the Moabites, and that's exactly what these two sons do. Now, ironically, it's only on their death that one of their wives, a lady called Ruth, says, I'm going to abandon this Moabite way of life. And actually, Ruth, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so in a backdrop of compromise, Ruth reverses the status quo and returns to the people of God. And the story is a fantastic picture of redemption and welcoming somebody that was outside of the people of God into this family. And if you're reading this book, just bear in mind Jesus and the church welcoming you into this family of God. Now, the last judge was a guy called Samuel, and he was a prophet type of judge. And he's leading the people, and the 12 tribe, they've got different elders, and they come to him, and they say this. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and this is verse 6 through 9. So the people of God come up to Samuel, and they say, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel hears from God saying, okay, look, the people have rejected me again, but give them what they want. But tell them that actually if you have a king, they're going to put the taxes really high. If you have a king, they're going to rule over you and dominate you. And this is what the people said. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight the battles. So here again, it should be no surprise now there's a pattern emerging. The people say, oh, we want to reject God. We don't want him as king over us. We want our own king just so that we can look exactly like all the other nations. We don't want to be holy and set apart. We want a king. So why does God say yes? Why doesn't he just say, no, you can't have that because I, I know what's best for you? So there's a difference between God's permissive will and God's primary will. Now, what I mean by that is it's like a father with his child. And he says, look, as your dad, 
I know what's best for you. In fact, I've got all of this in store for you. If you will just trust me, this is my heart for you. This is what I want for you. This is my primary desire for your life. But because I know what your hearts are like, I know how stubborn you are. I know that you're going to reject me. So because I love you and want to keep this relationship, well, I permit you to have this thing. I permit you to have it. It's not my primary will, but it's my permissive will. And we see this again and again throughout the Old Testament. We see it with things like marriage and divorce. See, marriage was God's primary will for his people, that the marriage might look like something of God's relationship within himself, that it might mirror and demonstrate the love of God. But he knows what people's hearts are like. And he says, look, I I know that you can be stubborn in your heart, so I permit you to have a certificate of divorce. We see that again and again in the mercy and love of God to keep a relationship with his people. So what happens then? Well, Saul becomes king. This is the first king, and he starts off very well. For 40 years he reigns, but pride enters his heart. Now, pride is the same problem that the, that the people of God had in the book of Judges, that he did as he saw fit, and he wasn't kind of quick to turn back to God. He had pride, so God raises up another king, a guy called David. Now, this King David, we're told, is a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? The word identity comes from the Latin word idem, which means the same. So there's something here then about David having a heart similar to or inclined towards God, something about his heart identified with God's heart, that what God wants, David wants, that they kind of move in sync, that they're defined by or merged with one. Now, another way of understanding this passage, to have a heart after God, is actually that it is God who was after David's heart. See, God desperately wanted that relationship with David. And it wasn't because of the good things that he'd done. It wasn't because of the bad things that he'd done, because we know he wasn't perfect. In fact, David um, had sex with a lady who was married. She becomes pregnant, and he freaks out. So he decides, I need to cover this up. So I'm going to kill her husband. Now, when he gets found out, David's heart, unlike Saul's, doesn't rebel and say, well, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. Instead, his heart is reoriented and it comes back into alignment with God's. The point then for you and I, however we interpret this passage, is that God desperately wants a relationship with you, not because of the good things you've done or the bad, terrible things that you've done in your life, but just because of his grace and his favor and his love upon you. It's from that place then of relationship that our hearts are made new and come back into a realignment with God so that we can be defined by, that we can reorient ourselves around God. Now that book ends and the story carries on in the book of Kings and Chronicles. And it talks about David's son, Solomon, who rises to become king. There's a bit of argy-bargy at the start of his reign. Um, But once he's there, once Solomon becomes king, it starts off so well. He's an incredibly wise man. In fact, he publishes books for the other people of God to read. And he's so in love with the presence of God that he spends loads and loads of money on building God a temple so that people can worship him. He starts off so well. So it's tragic then to read these verses. This is 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 5. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, 
along with the daughter of Pharaoh, ready for this, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So what does Solomon do then? He clings to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart for after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. If you are a follower of Jesus, this story should send shivers down your spine. This guy started out so well, he was so passionate, so wholehearted, so fully devoted to God and his youth. But the pleasures of life slowly turned his heart away. And what does he do? He clings to these things. Pride enters. He clings onto the things that he loves. He rejects God. Ultimately, there's a hardness of heart that occurs. And this is terrifying. Now, some of you might think, well, Elspeth, you're only 28. Um, You don't have any children. Um, You don't have elderly parents who need looking after. Really, what do you know about compromise? And yeah, you're probably true. But I've grown up in churches, and I've seen the friendships that my parents have with colleagues and other people around them. And I've seen over the years, even youth workers and things, who've started out so passionately in love with God. But slowly, the things of life creep in, and they can be good things, but they take that first place, and bit by bit, they become cold in their faith. Now, some of you might also be thinking, Elspeth, you don't need to tell me. I'm solid. I love God. I'm planted in his word, you know, but because of that, I can date non-Christians because they're not going to sway me because I'm, I'm so rooted. I don't need to go to church or read my Bible because I'm so rooted. In the New Testament, there's a letter called 1 Corinthians, and it's in chapter 10, and the author says, for those of you who are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Now, the proof of this challenge really is in Solomon's legacy. He has a son who becomes king, and this son, Rehoboam, receives godly advice about how to run the kingdom. And what does he do? He rejects that godly advice, and he listens to some of his friends around him. I wonder if that sounds familiar or where he got that from. Now, the result of that rejecting of this godly advice was that he split the people of God into two. So now you've got the northern kingdoms, 10 tribes in total, and in the south, you've got the southern kingdoms where Jerusalem is. And there's a guy called Jeroboam who's the first king of this kingdom of Israel, and he says, hey, now that we've got our own kind of kingdom, I need to change the identity of the people of God. So he does something very clever. He sets up two altars in very strategic places, one in a place called Dan and one in a place called Bethel. Now, Bethel means house of God. And back in Genesis, God revealed himself to a man called Jacob in that place. In the book of Judges, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was, was kept in Bethel. See, Bethel looked and sounded and smelt like true worship. But... Jeroboam puts up altars to different gods, to the local cultural gods. And he does this to distract the people of God from going back south to Jerusalem to really worship. See, this compromise, this distraction looked and sounded and smelt like true worship. But within a couple of generations, their hearts were so far away from God. And if you remember at the end of the Pentateuch, back in Deuteronomy, there was a warning giving. If you don't live out your true identity as the people of God, then other nations will overtake you. And that's exactly what happens. 
the Babylonian, or sorry, the Assyrian Empire comes and overtakes the Northern Kingdom. About a hundred years later, the Babylonian Empire comes and captures the South. It destroys the temple and it uproots the people of God. Shortly afterwards, then, the Persian Empire come along and take out the whole thing. The people of God are in captivity and then in exile. And it's at this point they're saying, who are we? Whose do we belong to? What is my identity? What's my nationality? Where do I fit in in this world? In the final three books, then, of the, the history books, we've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and we've got Esther. Now, Esther appears 30 years before Ezra and Nehemiah, and she's a really interesting lady because culture around her gives her an identity. It says, you are very attractive. In fact, you are the most attractive lady you know, in all of the kingdom, and everybody forever after is going to remember how beautiful you are. She's also given an, another identity as wife and queen. Now, what that means is if she's given this identity, it means she has to act like it. She's told what behavior. And she said, as the queen, she's not allowed just to go in and approach the king whenever she wants. But she remembers her true identity as a child of God, and that informs every other identity that she's given. Her, her identity as the child of God supersedes all these other identities. And she knows then that as a child of God, I must forget what it is to be a queen, and I must go in to see this king. And what she does is she goes and she pleads for the life of the fellow Jewish people, and she saves a generation from genocide. Now, Ezra, I'd encourage you to read the book. Originally, it was part of the book of Nehemiah as well. And Ezra is a spiritual leader, but Nehemiah is very interesting as well. What he does is he rises the ranks in a culture that's not like his own. But he stays true to his true identity as a child of God. He works directly with the king, and he earns the king's trust and respect whilst being uncompromised in his true identity. And it's because of this position that God has raised him to that he can ask the king, can myself and the other people of God return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? And the king says yes, but not only so, the king finances this. So eventually the, the temple wall is being built and the temple is being rebuilt. Now the Greeks come along, they destroy the Persian Empire and it's under the Greek Empire that the temple is fully rebuilt. A couple of hundred years later, the Roman Empire comes and it's within this culture then, this Roman occupation of this land, that Jesus turns up on scene. And Jesus is walking around this second temple, this new temple, and he sees the Roman culture and its occupation on the land, and he says again and again to a lot of the religious people, you're hypocrites. That's not very nice. In Greek, the word hypocrite means actor. See, what Jesus is saying to these people is, you are very good at acting because when you're in the house of God, you know how to tithe. In fact, you even tithe your mint leaves, the leaves that you produce from your herbs, you tithe them. And when you pray, you pray so loud, you know all the big words, but you're acting. Why? Because in the silence of your own home, when it's just you in the car, when it's just you at your computer, when it's just you alone in the office, your heart is not after God's heart you are not identified with or defined by God. So what does God do? Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Jesus was fully God and fully human and therefore could demonstrate what it meant to have a heart that was fully devoted to God, to love God with his heart, his mind, his soul, without compromise. 
If you follow Jesus, the day that he died on the cross, his blood that poured out was an invitation to you that your hearts could be made new, that they could come back into realignment and back into relationship with the Father. And what that means for you and your identity is this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not defined by the things around you. Instead, you are defined radically as one beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Now, Peter, Jesus's beloved disciple, summarizes everything that I've been talking about, the history of God's people and your place in it. And he says this, in 1 Peter chapter one, as obedient children then, friends in this house, and if you're watching online, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for God is holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile, whether or not that's in Cambridge or wherever you live, whether or not that's at home or at work, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from these forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. See three, friends, if you love Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, once you were not a people, once your identity was constructed by culture around you, that was shakeable, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been adopted into this family. You are defined by him as one beloved. You are not identified with your diagnosis, your sexuality, the clothes you wear, the amount you've got in your bank account, your past. You are identified as a child of God. And if you, like me, want to stand up and just declare, God, I want to live wholeheartedly for you, I would invite you to stand now as a declaration that, God, I don't want to conform to the people around me, to the world around me but I want to be set apart. God, make our hearts zealous. And I'm going to pray for us now. If that's you, if you're online, just reach out to God with your hands, with your heart. Oh, Father, you are good. We love you, Jesus. I thank you that you died to bring us into relationship with you. God, I just declare right now that the people standing here would live out their true identity in the world around them. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to draw their hearts closer to yours, Father, that they would live uncompromised and live out their true identity as a loved child of God. In your holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.